This is an ABC podcast. Hey, just letting you know, this week's episode is one from our archives. About a decade ago, psychologist Ethan Cross found himself doing something totally out of character. I'm pacing my house with a baseball bat. At one point, I found myself contemplating just terribly irrational things. You know, these these bad guys coming to, to get us. And at one point in the early morning hours, I actually, as embarrassing as it is to admit, contemplated doing a Google search for bodyguards that specialize in protecting academics, <laughs> which, you know, in retrospect, right, is totally preposterous. Hmm. What in the world had gotten him to this point? Well, the story starts out straightforward enough. We had just published a study showing that when people use the words of physical pain to describe how they feel after being socially rejected, so people often say, oh, I'm in pain, my feelings hurt. We published a study that suggested that when people are using that language of being in pain, they may actually be referring to physical sensations in their body. Ethan and his colleagues had found the brain processed emotional and physical pain in surprisingly similar ways, more so than previously thought. And, you know, we had no high expectations for this paper, but it ended up getting a lot of coverage. I went on national television and it was it was really exciting, really fun for a couple of days until I came into work one day and I found a hand addressed letter in my envelope, which was a little odd because I never really get hand addressed mail anymore. I don't know about you, but it always is the email variety. Anyway, I opened up the letter and, you know, I was instantly confronted with lots of hate-filled messages and ugly drawings and and racial slurs. It was a truly terrifying moment. I never received a letter like that before. I experienced an immediate fight or flight terror reaction. He reported the letter to police, but they weren't very helpful. The officer I spoke with took a look at the letter, nodded disapprovingly and said, yeah, this happens every now and again. You'll, You'll probably be fine. Ethan wasn't convinced. He was on edge, and his thoughts were starting to spiral out of control. For the next couple of nights, I was a chatter-filled mess. I kept, you know, thinking, why did I why did I go on television? What have I done? I had a newborn child at home. I've put them at risk, and I'm pacing my house with um, with a baseball bat. And so it was really a powerful firsthand experience of the phenomenon that I had spent a lot of time studying up until that point. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. And most of us have an inner voice. It reminds you to pick up the milk on your way home, helps you problem solve. But there are times that helpful or neutral voice veers into harmful chatter. We worry, we ruminate, we catastrophize. But why do we have that inner voice? Why does it get stuck on a negative loop? And what can we do when it does? You know, if you experience chatter from time to time, congratulations, welcome to the human condition. You are not alone. Today, the chatter that clouds our thinking and how to control it. Imagine you're at a grocery store and you've got a list of things you need to buy. Cheese, crackers, chocolate. 
You repeat this to yourself as you make your way through the aisles. Cheese, crackers, chocolate. That is your inner voice talking. Your inner voice is part of what we call our working memory system. This is a basic, fundamental system of the human mind that lets us keep information active in our heads. So we all have that basic capacity. Now, we can also use our inner voice to to do more complicated things in life. And there's variability with respect to how much we lean on it to do some of those additional things. Before we get into those additional things, let me introduce Ethan Cross properly. He's a professor of psychology and management at the University of Michigan. And I'm the author of Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. And so one of the more complicated things our inner voice can do is simulate and plan. So before people have an interview or have to give a presentation, they'll often report rehearsing in their mind what they're going to say. I do this before I have a presentation. I'll often go over the talking points in my head. We sometimes use our inner voice to coach ourselves through difficult problems. Like when I'm exercising, I will often count down the number of sets left in a routine. So 10, nine, eight, come on, seven more. Then you get to eat something fun. That's my inner voice. And then finally, We use our inner voice to create stories that help explain our experience in this world. So something bad happens, we turn our attention inward, and we try to make sense of that experience. And we we often use our inner voice to narrate those life events. So there are a lot of different features of the inner voice, and there's variability. Some people may lean on it for some things more than others, but we all have that capacity if our minds are in well-ordered condition. Mm, and I, I found it really interesting that you wrote that even those who are deaf have an inner voice of sorts. They also activate this inner voice, but it takes a different form. It takes a form of of signing to themselves silently in their minds, which I think is just interesting. You know, some of the research on the phenomenology of the inner voice is just fascinating, and and I wish there was more of it. And so how and when does a normal inner voice morph into chatter? And what is chatter? So when we experience adversity, we often reflexively turn our attention inward to grapple with the problems we face, to try to come up with a solution to the issues we're we're dealing with. But we don't always find solutions. Sometimes we end up getting stuck. We worry, we ruminate, we catastrophize, which is what I call chatter, getting stuck in a negative thought loop where you're not making progress towards resolving your problems. Instead, you're overthinking them in ways that just create more distress. So that's what chatter is. And in terms of sticking with definitions, how is chatter separate to when voices in our head are a symptom of mental illness? Great question. When people tell me that they experience chatter, which is really the dark side of the inner voice, it's it's an example of a case in which you have this tool that is often working really well for you, but it's backfiring in, in this particular issue, you know, circumstance. When people tell me they have chatter, I often say, welcome to the human condition. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty common experience that we encounter at some point in our lives, some some of us more than others. Chatter, importantly, is very different from hearing voices in our head, as is often described with certain other clinical populations, like people experiencing certain forms of psychoses or, or schizophrenia. In those cases, what is happening is you are hearing a voice in your head or voices, but you're not recognizing that those voices are emanating 
from you and mm. instead you think that it is an, a different entity in your mind. So Sana, if I were to ask you to try to hear your mom tell you to make your bed right now, could you <laughs> simulate her voice in your internally in your mind? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Sana, go make your bed. Okay, some version of it. So so you're hearing a different voice. That's mom in there telling you to do something. <laughs> But you know that you are generating that mm. auditory representation of your mother. Right. And that's very different from thinking that she's parked in your temporal cortex, mm. pulling your strings. So that's one way that chatter differs significantly from certain voice hearing populations. There is another relevant issue here, though, which is sometimes our experience of chatter can spill over into clinical disorders having to do with anxiety and depression. but Importantly, that chatter exists on a continuum. So when we're talking about mood disorders, we're talking about chatter that is unrelenting. It is it is firing with very high volume and for long stretches of time in ways that are significantly impairing your experience to live the life you want to live. That's different from the more run-of-the-mill, everyday experiences of chatter that most of us deal with. Mm. That's not to say the more run-of-the-mill chatter isn't difficult to deal with at times. Professor Cross says it can hamper us in three core domains of life. It makes it hard for us to think and perform, it creates friction in our social relationships, and it can even damage our physical health. He experienced all three of these impacts after that threatening letter sent him into a tailspin of anxious, if a little irrational, chatter. So, you know, thinking and performing, I distinctly remember there was this one particular academic paper that one of my students was waiting on comments for, and I, I couldn't touch it because my mind was consumed with the chatter. I could not focus on this other task. And, you know, that was undermining me at work. In terms of my relationships, I kept on talking about this problem over and over and over again. And I remember sitting down at dinner and talking to my wife about, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And you know, she's trying to be incredibly empathic and calm, but her advice wasn't penetrating. And so I kept on talking about it, which, you know, at a certain point, what more can she say without being dragged down herself? So that wasn't very good. And then, I, you know, I, I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating. So it was affecting my physiology as well. So it was a, it was a kind of a, um, it's like being trapped in one of my own experiments. It was not a pleasant place to be in. Luckily, Professor Cross's experience with chatter was relatively short-lived. He snapped out of it after a couple of days. We'll get into how he did that a little later, but let's explore the real-world impacts of chatter in a bit more detail. And when it comes to performance, it can be debilitating. The most famous recent example was Simone Biles during the, the last Summer Olympics, where here you have the greatest athlete in her sport of all time, on the greatest stage that she can compete on. And at the height of a competition, she drops out because of the twisties. The twisties are another name for chatter. Oh. It's often called the yips as well. <laughs> what happened with, with Simone was she had these amazingly complicated routines that she could typically perform without thinking. But all of a sudden, as she's flipping in the air and twisting herself, she's wondering if she's doing it well. And once you start hyper-focusing on those individual behaviors, that makes things really dangerous. So she rightfully withdrew because her health was at stake. 
but chatter was the reason she did it. So that's how chatter undoes us when it comes to thinking and performing. Chatter's effect on the body can go further. What makes stress toxic is when a stress response is triggered and then it remains chronically activated over time. And that's exactly what chatter does because we experience something stressful in our lives and then we keep replaying it in our heads over and over and over again. And when we replay it, we maintain that stress reaction. That's how you get stress predicting things like problems of cardiovascular disease, certain forms of cancer and inflammation. As for the impact on our relationships, chatter can be utterly corrosive. And there are a couple of ways that this works. One way it works is when we experience chatter, we're often intensely motivated to share what we're going through with other people to get support. There are a couple of exceptions to that rule. We tend not to want to talk about certain kinds of trauma or shame experiences, Mm -hmm. but for all the other kinds of negative chatter-provoking experiences we have, we often go to other people for help. What sometimes happens though, and this is really tragic, is we find someone to talk to and then we keep on talking to them over and over and over again about our problems because those problems persist in our minds. And there's often only so much that even our most well-intentioned loved ones and friends can listen to before we start to bring them down. And so that's one way that chatter can alienate us from people who really care about us, leading us to feel lonely and rejected. Reading that part of the book was really profound for me because it helped explain the ending of a friendship I had. Um, and I knew I knew why I ended the friendship, that it, you know, there was an emotional imbalance in terms of the negativity being expressed and it just became untenable. But to see it written and explained in the book was really helpful to understanding, you know, I wasn't unfair in ending it. I was actually sort of following a logical script of what happens in these situations. And it's a dynamic that's not specific to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, this part of the the book dealing with social support, many people have, have written in to respond how helpful they found it. Because I think so many of us think that other people are just an incredible resource to help us with our chatter. And we also think that, hey, if you're experiencing your chatter, just get it out. Just vent your emotions. That's mm-hmm. what culture tells us to do. That this idea that we should just vent our feelings, this is deeply entrenched in popular culture. It's an idea that dates back to Aristotle and was popularized by Freud and persists to this day, despite there being a lot of research looking at what the consequences are of unfiltered venting for people and their relationships. And what we've learned is that in contrast to what we're often told, venting doesn't actually make us feel better about what we're going through. Venting our feelings can make us feel closer and more connected to someone who's willing to listen to us. But if all we do is vent about our problems, that tends to keep them activated in our head. So we often stay really upset. And because of that, we just keep on talking about the problems, which can then push other people away. Given all these real world impacts between the impact on our body, our social lives, our performance, does this all make you paranoid about your own inner voice and and what it's doing and how you're talking to yourself? Yes and no. And um, (laughs) the reason I I don't live in a paranoid state and instead I'm actually quite hopeful is I'm also aware of the fact that there are lots of tools that exist for helping people manage our chatter. And, you know, there is no single magic pill, no one tool that helps all people across the board. Instead, what we know is that there are a variety of tools. So I think I'm actually quite good at managing my chatter. The moment 
I detect it starting to brew. I have four or five tools I instantly implement and mm. and usually it nips that reaction in the bud. Okay, let's let's talk about some of these strategies for containing our chatter. If we're finding ourselves in a pattern of negativity and and venting, what can we do to curb that? So I like to organize these these tools as falling into three three domains or three buckets. Things you could do on your own, ways of interacting with other people and then ways of interacting with our physical spaces. And I'll give you just a couple of examples. So one of the things we know about chatter is it it zooms us in on our problems. We start thinking very narrowly about the experiences that are driving these negative reactions. And one of the things we've learned is that the ability to to step back and, and shift our perspective and think about what's happening from a broader perspective can often be useful. One real world analog, I think that is useful to convey why broadening our perspective can sometimes be useful when managing chatter is to consider the fact that we are much better at giving advice to other people than we are giving advice to ourselves. I think many people have had this experience where a friend or loved one comes to them with a problem that they're experiencing chatter about. It's not happening to you. It's easy for you to coach them through the situation. You have that objectivity. You have that perspective. But when it's happening to you, you're a mess and mm-hmm. and you're the one seeking support and help. Well, what, what we've learned that I find is really exciting is that we possess the ability to shift our perspective on our own, to adopt a more distanced, uh, objective perspective. And there are lots of ways you can do it. So one way is to use language to alter your perspective. So when I'm dealing with some chatter, I will often use my own name and the second person pronoun you to coach myself through the problem. I'll think to myself, all right, Ethan, how are you going to manage the situation? What are you going to do? I'm talking to myself in that instance, like I would actually talk to another person and using words that are typically used to refer to other people, words like names and and second person pronouns, that functions to shift our perspective, right? It alters the way we relate to ourselves in ways that we find can be really helpful for people managing difficult emotional situations. We call this distant self-talk. And there are actually lots of examples of people doing this when under stress in the real world. One of my favorite examples is of Malala Yousafzai, youngest person to ever win the Nobel Peace Prize. Malala famously started advocating for the right of girls to receive an education while she was still a schoolgirl herself. For her efforts, the Taliban shot her in the head. She goes on to make this miraculous recovery, wins the Nobel. And around that time, she goes on a talk show in the States, The the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. She's on the talk show and the host asks her, what's going through your head when you find out the Taliban are coming to get you? And what she says is something to the following effect. I used to think to myself, what would I do if the Tali would come and get me? And then I would say, if he comes, what would you do, Malala? And then I would reply, just take a shoe and hit him. But then I would say to myself, if you took a shoe, you'd be no better than then. You must respond with peace and patience and so forth and so on. And I think that interview is just a wonderful example of how language can shift our perspective in useful ways. I mean, here you have a young girl who's contemplating one of the most terrifying events that any person could fathom. And she, she starts off reliving that event in the first person 
What would I do? What would I say? And the moment she gets to the point in the story where the assassin is there, she switches. She starts coaching herself through the problem like she would give advice to someone else. That's distant self-talk. That's one tool that listeners might try on their own. That's a really simple thing we can do, but it almost sounds like so simplistic. It's surprising it can have such an effect. Why is it that it's so powerful? And and can you tell me about how you use that when you were facing your own chatter crisis, you know, after receiving the threatening letter? Sure. So words are tightly linked with thinking. And if you think about the frequency with which we use names and second or even third person pronouns to refer to other people, the links between using those parts of speech and thinking about others is super tight in the mind, right? Most of the time when we use the word you, we're using that word to address another person. And so the idea is that because those linkages are so tight, when you use that word to refer to yourself, it's automatically switching your perspective. It's turning on the, the, the neural machinery, so to speak, for thinking about others, yeah. which makes it easier to slip into that advice-giving mode. That's the idea behind why this works. And there is some supportive evidence behind that, and although there's clearly more that we have to learn about it. This is, though, the tool that I used when I was in that chatter funk dealing with that threatening letter. At one point, I found myself contemplating just terribly irrational things, you know, these, these bad guys coming to, to get us and kill my family. And at one point in the early morning hours, I actually, as embarrassing as it is to admit, I contemplated doing a Google search for bodyguards that specialize in protecting academics, <laughs> which in retrospect, right, is totally preposterous. Hmm. And I have this flashbulb memory of beginning to type that out in the Google prompt and then not hitting enter because I thought to myself, Ethan, what is wrong with you? Get a grip, man. And, and it really was using language to give myself some tough love in that instance and tell myself, look, here are all the reasons why this has gone too extreme and why we need to take the volume down. And it really shifted the internal narrative that was playing in my mind in a way that helped me diffuse that situation. Right. So just referring to yourself as as your name and, and talking to yourself that way snapped you out of that. Yeah. And it, 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 it's, it's not just mentioning your name. It is using your name to try to work through the problem. Mm. So it is about like giving yourself advice, coaching yourself through the situation, using the second person pronoun you and your name. Some people find it more comfortable to just use the second person pronoun you. I personally use both parts of speech, but those are small nuances. All right. So that's distance self-talk. What other strategies are some you recommend? So one, one more distancing tool you can use on your own is something that we call temporal distancing. It's sometimes referred to as mental time travel. And here the idea is when we're experiencing chatter, it's all consuming. We're narrowly zoomed in on the issue. Think about how you're going to feel about this problem the next day, the next week, or a month from now, or a year from now. What, what that does is it, it broadens our perspective, right? In, in a different way, using time rather than language there. And when we think about how we're going to feel about something that we're grappling with down the road, what often happens is we, we realize that as, as awful as what we're going through is right now, it is, it's usually temporary. Uh, you know, most of our negative experiences eventually fade with time. And, and thinking about how we're going to feel in the future makes that idea 
uh, accessible. And that gives people hope that can be useful when they're managing chatter. Professor Cross says seeking a broader perspective is also a useful tool when dealing with others. Let's switch to people tools, ways of leveraging your relationships with other people. We already talked about the hazards of venting. What you want to do is find people who do two things for you. People who do allow you to talk for a little bit about what you're going through. It is useful to learn about what someone else is experiencing and allow them to connect with you emotionally in that way. But at a certain point in the conversation, what they do is they try to nudge you to broaden your perspective. So we talked about broadening our perspective on our own before. Other people are in our prime position to help us do that. And so it's finding people to talk to who do both of these things. Now, there is an art to doing this well. And what I mean by that is, depending on who the person is and what they're going through, some people may need more or less time just expressing their emotions before they're ready to switch into that receiving advice mm. mode. Yes. So, you know, you know, I give an example with my wife. If my wife comes to me and she's has some chatter about something, I'll listen intently and empathically connect. And at a certain point, I'll say, hey, I totally get it. Sounds awful. I have a thought. Can I offer you my advice on this? Hmm. And sometimes she'll say, no, just <laughs> listen. I'm not done. And then I just keep listening. In other instances, she'll be, please tell me. That's why I'm coming here. I want your advice. And so you want to feel that out and be artful in in how you do it. And in the book, you write about how ritual can help control chatter or keep it at bay. And I thought that was a really lovely section. Can you explain how that works? Sure. So, you know, ritual, many people throughout history up until the present report engaging in rituals when they're stressed out, when they're dealing with chatter-provoking situations. And, and there's been research showing that rituals can actually help us manage our chatter. And there, there, there are many ingredients that explain how rituals work. One thing they do is they divert our attention away from the chatter momentarily, because oftentimes rituals, which are defined by scientists as rigid sequences of behaviors that we perform the same way every time. So they're often attentionally demanding. If you ever watch Rafael Nadal play tennis, mm. he's famous for performing rituals before every serve and before every game. And if you watch those rituals, you know, they're not simple. Mm. <laughs> there are lots of steps involved. Yeah. So, so they consume our attention. They draw it away from our chatter. Another thing that a ritual does is it gives us a sense of control. And that's really useful because oftentimes when we're experiencing chatter, we feel like we don't have control over ourselves, right? The, the chatter is in charge. We don't have control of our minds. But a ritual is something that we have agency over. So when people, when people do a ritual, when they perform one, it compensates for that lack of control you're feeling when you're experiencing chatter, which can improve the way people feel. The final route that rituals can help, I'd like to mention, has to do with enhancing our sense of social connection with others. A lot of the rituals that we engage in are communal rituals, athletes who do things together on a team, prayer rituals and religions. There's a sense of, of social connection that emerges when we are all performing an act that is infused with meaning in unison. And that can also work against our chatter as well. And in the decades since you had that really terrible experience with chatter, has 
using these tools sort of kept that kind of incident at bay? Absolutely. You know, I, th there's still a tweak that happens here and there at times, but I have not duplicated that kind of chatter event since. Um, I really do feel genuinely that I have access to a variety of tools that, that are really, really helpful. You know, we all have these inner voices and that makes us human and nothing more, nothing less. And so understanding why that is and why those inner voices sometimes run awry, I think that's really useful information to have. That's Ethan Cross, professor of psychology and management at the University of Michigan and author of the book Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. And that threatening letter he received, the one we mentioned at the start of the show, thankfully, nothing ever came of it. Just a whole lot of inner chatter. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Our producer is James Bullen. Sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.